Hey, if you've got your Bibles, go to Ephesians chapter 5. That's where we're going to be this morning. My name's Ross. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel. And we have been looking at this letter that Paul has written to the Ephesians. And we're in the section, sort of the last half of this letter. And one of the things that Paul does is he, he turns his attention, if you will, from from all the things that God has done to, to us as believers. What does it look like for us as believers to live out in our life? He's going to use the word to, to walk in a way that reflects all that God has done in our life. And he began in chapter 4, verse 1, and he tells us to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And then he moves and tells us, don't walk as Gentiles anymore and and then this morning, we're going to see two aspects of, of this as he continues. He wants to encourage us to walk in love and to walk in the light. And so that's what we're going to see this morning in Ephesians chapter 5. Start off with a story. Uh, it was a foggy night, and there was a captain of a massive battleship and in the distance, he spots a faint light. And so he tells the signalman on the battleship to send a message to the, the light that's out in the distance. And the message from the battleship was, alter your course 10 degrees south. Immediately, the captain received a response. And the response from the, the light out there was, alter your course 10 degrees north. Well, the captain was indignant and Obviously, not used to having his orders uh, rejected, he repeats the message and adds a, a little punch. Alter your degrees, your, your course 10 degrees south. I'm the captain of this vessel. Almost instantly, the message came back, and he said, I'm Seaman Third Class Jones. Alter your course 10 degrees north. So the captain's ticked. It's low-ranking seaman giving orders to a ship captain. He's like, this has to stop. So he responds back to him, says, young man, I repeat, alter your course 10 degrees south. This is a battleship. The reply came immediately back. Captain, I repeat, alter your course 10 degrees north. This is a lighthouse. One of the things Paul is going to do this morning is he's going to contrast the light and the dark. And he wants us to walk as children of the light. That's who we are. He, he wants to expose those activities, those deeds, those behaviors that are of the darkness. And, and, and we come to this passage, and we're, listen, we're just like the captain of the battleship. We're stubborn, we're self-confident, we're self-reliant. Too often we are unwilling to change our course. And, and this, is what, this is what Paul's doing. He, he writes, listen, we're going to read things this morning in this passage, and you so you know these things. I mean, as a believer, you instinctively know these things. You, you know, 
As a parent, you know these things because these are the kinds of things you teach your children, you wish for your children. And yet, there's a pride in us and a rebellion in us and a sinfulness in us that Paul, with all the force of the Holy Spirit and in writing the Word of God in this letter to the Ephesians, wants to awaken them, wants to, to challenge them to change course. These are warnings from God. And to do anything else runs us headlong into moral disaster in our life. And so we've said over and over again, when you get to this section of Ephesians, it's easy to come away and go, okay, this is the list of things that I'm, I'm supposed to do, and this is the list of things I'm not supposed to do. And that that's the sum total of the Christian life. And I'm telling you, but Paul's already made the argument, that's not the sum total of the Christian life. You, your life is, is a living out what God has done in you already. So you, you can't get to Christianity by a list of do's and a list of don'ts. You, you, the message of Christianity is not, you know, stop being bad and start being good. The, the message of Christianity is you were dead. But God, because of what He has done in his, through His Son, Jesus Christ, you've been made alive, and He wants you to live like you're alive. To walk in love, to walk in light, because that is who you are. Now, look at what he's going to say. The first six verses here, let me read them, and this is the walk in love section. You'll see it when it shows up. He starts in, in 5.1 of Ephesians. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in light as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience." In verse 1, when he talks about being imitators, the words literally to, to mimic, to, to act out what somebody else is doing. Paul, Paul has said this a couple of times in, in, to the Corinthian church. He tells them, I heard you, uh, be imitators of me, he says. He goes on and gives it more color a few chapters later, and he says, be imitators of me as I am uh, of Christ. And, and he wants us to be people who imitate Christ, who imitate God in our lives. 
The question is, so, so okay, what is God doing that we, that we imitate? Well, it's hard to know what God's doing. It's hard to know who He is. It's hard to know His character and His attributes apart from what He has revealed in His Word. And, and time in His Word, as we say often, I mean, this is the last half of the letter to the Ephesians, I mean, it doesn't happen in our life apart from time in God's Word. It has an effect of working its way out in our life. And it's interesting, he gives us, so, so if we're actors and we're, you know, mimicking, we're imitating, we're, we're, we're taking on the, the role of, of God in our life and we're, we're imitating what it is he does, he gives us inspiration for the part that we're playing. We're not simply to mimic God, but we're children imitating our heavenly Father. So you, you can, if you wanted to, it'd probably be pretty easy if you've listened to me for a while or had a conversation. You, you could probably imitate me. Eric Barton does a fantastic imitation of Ross Strader. But let me tell you something. It pales in comparison to the imitation my son Jay does of his dad. He has the ability... I mean, it makes me cringe. I think, oh, no, surely I'm not that way. <laughs> surely not. But I am. You know, what's fascinating is he can imitate me on purpose. It's the ways he imitates me on accident that are sometimes frightening to me. See, the great thing is we have a good God. And as his children, we're to imitate him and imitate him because, because we know him, because we're leaning into him. We, we're thinking about him. We see him at work. We, we read what he's revealed. And, and we get this great picture. We take our cue from, from Jesus. He's the eternal son imitating the eternal father. There's a guy a couple of years ago who had a set up a YouTube account and started making some YouTube videos. His name was Gar Rhinus. And he was, um, he was, he was fascinating. He ended up being on, on talk shows and, and all these things um, because what he did was so compelling. I mean, it's, hard to, it's hard to look away, particularly if you're a baseball fan, because what Gar did was he would watch and study all of his favorite baseball players, and he would imitate their batting stances. And it's fascinating. You think, well, that, that's pretty boring, except when you see him do it. And he begins to highlight all the differences in the batting stances, and he has names for them. He says, Cal Ripken Jr. has 21 different batting stances, and he just does them over and over. And you just, you're, you're in awe, particularly if you, if you love baseball. And I was thinking about it. I watched the clip this week. It was when he was on David Letterman. And, and, and a couple of things. But the reason he does it is because he loves baseball. I mean, the imitation of these baseball players, their batting stances, it comes from his, from his love of baseball and, and his affection for the players and, and how they do their thing. It's very much like, you know, a growing affection for and a love for who God is and what his attributes are and how they play themselves out and what grace looks like and what mercy looks like and what justice looks like. And kindness and goodness. 
And he's good at it. He's good at doing it because he spends a lot of time studying it and practicing it. And he gets great joy from it. And because he gets great joy, the, the reality is that he's contagious. It's fun to watch. It endears you when you watch him. It endears you to the players he imitates. And this is very much what Paul means when, he, when he's calling us to imitate God. That we'd, one, we'd love him. We'd lean into him. We'd love to watch him do what it is that he does. We spend time studying it, practicing it, so we can get it just right because it, it brings us joy and it's contagious to watch. And it endears those around us who see us imitating our Father. And he's going to tell us that one of the ways we do that is, verse 2, is that we walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Here's one of the things you can write down. Love, real love. Love is costly and it is sacrificial. If you are loving in a way that doesn't cost you anything and isn't a sacrifice, you're doing it wrong. This is the, the believer's walk. And when we talk about our walk, it's, it's, it, he, what Paul means is, is where is our life aimed? What is the direction in which our life is aimed? And the obstacles in our life as we're aimed towards love, the obstacles continue to pop up in our life. Our, our own agendas, our, our own pride, our, our, the desire for our own glory, all those things. And, and yet, as we keep our life aimed in the direction of who God is, we walk through those. See, the offering, the, the sacrifice, it was this fragrant aroma. You could say this about love. Love given irrespective, regardless of merit, what someone earns, and love seeks the highest good for the one being loved. Here's what, another way to say it. Love is selfless, it's sacrificial, it's self-giving. These are all the things that agape love means. To, to love is to give. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. To love is to give. Living a, a life that looks to others and meets the needs of others is the call for the believer's walk. One commentator said it this way, he's telling us to love our neighbors in the sense of being willing to work for their well-being, even if it means sacrificing our own well-being to that end. And I'll tell you, that is very different than the world's focus on love these days. It, these days, the highest priority, if you were to believe everything you read, the highest priority is to love yourself 
to the degree that you're forsaking the needs of others, that, that if loving yourself, that, that if loving others costs you the ability to be able to love yourself in the way that you need to love yourself, then you've got to forsake that. Which is exactly what Paul is going to bring us to. This is not a 21st century problem. It is a, it is a throughout history, all mankind problem. So he's going to move from love, which love is, and we're, we're seeking the best for those we love, to, to the absolute perversion of love in verses 3 and 4 and 5 and 6. And look again what he says. But sexual immorality in all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Now, one of the things Paul's saying, love and sex are not the same thing. Love and power are not the same thing. Love and money are not the same thing. The word sexual immorality there, this is the word pornea. It's the same word we get pornography from. And when it is used in the New Testament, even in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's used two different ways. At one level, it is a deviation of the true worship of God. It's used in another level to talk about the the, the violations regarding marriage. So, any kind of sex outside of marriage... It speaks to that. But it's also the violations with regard to worship. And here are these people that he's writing to. They're in Ephesus. The center of Ephesus is the temple of Diana. And there was, you know, the temple of Diana. There's temple prostitution. There's a statue of Diana that sits in the center that's covered in breasts. I mean, this was the way of life back then. It was a highly sexualized culture that the Ephesians lived in. Now, for us today, because, you know, moral purity rules the day today, it's hard for us to imagine that, right? Actually, it's not. It's everywhere. And Paul says... As we engage in that, as we entertain that, it is unfaithfulness. It's a perversion of love. It is, it is if you will, it's love, it is turned inward on itself. It's, it's distorted, and that's why then he moves into the next word. He talks about impurity. It comes from the word, the root of it is the same word we get catharsis from, but he's talking about an anti-catharsis. Catharsis means, you know, you make something clean, you heal something, you purify something, you, you provide relief. An anti-catharsis or this impurity, it, it, it talks about the uncleanness or a state of moral corruption. The same word it's used is used to talk about unclean spirits and demons. And it always leads to Guilt and shame and habitual sin and obsessions and addictions and a life that spirals out of control. 
He doesn't stop there. He moves into another word, covetousness, greediness, wanting more than you have, more than you need. Another way to say it, it's an extreme desire to gain beyond what you have capacity for. It is taking advantage of people and hoarding things for yourself. You, these are like the, the trinity of depravity here. And they erode from the inside and they tear down those things outside of us. They don't build up the body. They don't build up the people in our life around us. They are words that describe how we use the people around us, to use someone or something for your own gain is to destroy what it is that you're using. He says there shouldn't even be a hint of it. It shouldn't even be named among you. One writer said, too, too much discussion of evil often functions like an incantation, bringing the very thing we say we despise into our lives. And it's not proper among saints. The, the saints who are set apart, you, you, are, you are saints the moment that you're saved and you're in Christ. And Peter says, you were called out of the darkness into marvelous light. That's who you are. And it's so incompatible. Well, in verse 4, he, he, he he digs down into this, and, and, he, and he talks about the very words that come out of our mouth. Look at verse 4 again. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. Now, now listen, every temptation in me is to skip right past 4 for the sake of time. But I'm telling you, this has been so convicting to me this week. I just, just did a little work on what these words mean. Here's, here's what filthiness means, all right? Refers to shameful, disgraceful talk, including degrading obscenities that rob people of their dignity. Here's what foolish talk is. Foolish talk is an interesting word. It, it, the Greek word is morologia. Moro is the word we get moron from. Literally, the words of a moron. The words of a fool. Words that do not profit anyone. This last one, crude joking. Interestingly enough, sometimes it's used in a positive way to mean witty. Except when it's not used in a positive way. The classic example of this in our world. When you take something that's innocent and you turn it into something that's dirty. That, that's essentially what it is. And the classic example in our world is Michael Scott from The Office. And you think about it, and every time he says, well, that's what she said. That's crude joking. 
Paul's not condemning wit or laughter. I think Paul's funny, maybe. Um, Jesus certainly was. He was attractive. Certainly he laughed. Certainly he had a great humor. But Paul's talking about when humor and words are used to tear down, humor that's cheap or it embarrasses or it degrades. That's not what we're, I mean, we should have no part of that. Our lips are to be filled with thanksgiving. That's the practice of the saint. And listen, these are warnings, verses 3 and 4. They're warnings we need to hear as much as the original readers heard them. I mean, we literally, we are desensitized to this. We are culturally numb. It is everywhere. Every TV show, every movie, every conversation. If we're honest, much of our conversation, much of our interaction is the imitation of the culture and media and influences around us. We're, we're many of us better at playing that part than we are the part of a child of God. And what Paul is saying, listen, he's saying it to you, he's saying it to me. It's appalling, it's shameful, it should embarrass us. Verse 5, this is for, for you may be sure of this. Everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who's covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. Paul lays it down, doesn't he? So, let me tell you what he's not saying. Uh, make, make sure you, you don't leave here hearing what Paul's not saying. Paul's not saying, hey, if you, if you told a bad joke or you used the Michael Scott line this week, um, that you can't go to heaven. That's not what he's saying. Of course he's not saying that. You'd have to cancel out nine-tenths of everything else Paul wrote if that's what Paul means. But I don't want that to just assuage your guilt. I want that to be, you know, the lev- you, you're let off the hook on this deal. Paul wants to stab us awake with these frightening truths that kingdom people, which we are, kings and queens, awaiting crowns, this is incompatible with who we are. It is so out of sync with who we are. These traits do not fit either your position in Christ or your identity in Christ. That's, that's what the world does. The sons of disobedience, which means everybody who's disobedient, everybody who's rebelled, everybody who is, who's in their pride and ignorance, rejected Christ, re- rejected their creator. That's what, that's what the world does this is not what you do. There's two words he uses. One he uses idolatry. The other he talks about an inheritance. This is what idolatry is. Certainly it's the worship of something that 
else that isn't the true God. But, but ultimately, at its base, it is an eternal investment. Idolatry is an eternal investment in something that is temporary. It, it, it is the investment of your, of your soul and your energy and your affections into something that is temporary. Inheritance comes. It's the, it's the result of, of redemption. It, it's not, listen, inheritance is not a future reward based upon your faithfulness. The eternal kingdom of God is not for saints who have never sinned, but sinners who have been redeemed by Christ's sacrifice. The contrast that he's making is those who are going to inherit the blessings, the eternal blessings, the heavenly blessings of God, and those who will inherit at the end God's eternal wrath. And we're not supposed to look like that. It's a parable Jesus tells in Luke 12. It's of the rich young fool. Somebody in the crowd says to Jesus, tell my brother that we're supposed to divide this inheritance. And Jesus, in the way that he interacted, he said, who... Why you, who made me the judge over that? And then he looks at him and he says, listen, you need to take care. Be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he tells this parable, and he says, there was a land and a rich man, and he produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. So he builds bigger barns, larger ones, he's going to store his grain, and then his soul comes. Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Then God comes and says, you're a fool. This night your soul will be required of you. The things you've prepared, those temporary things that you've eternally invested in, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich Toward God. No matter how much you collect, it'll never be enough to buy a blessing. You can buy a house, but that doesn't make a home. You can buy influence. It doesn't mean you have friends. You can buy lots of things, but nothing you can cherish for eternity can be bought with money. All of that, anything that tells you differently in verse 6, Paul says it's empty words, and don't let yourself be deceived by the empty words. Then as he moves from that, he's going to talk about, he's going to talk about this light and darkness. So real quick, I want you to see it. Verse 7, therefore, do not become partners with them. Don't, don't, be, you, you don't be an accomplice with them. And he's warning us that because it's a very real possibility. He says, for one time, you were darkness, but now you are 
light in the Lord. Not, not that you were in the darkness, you were in the darkness. Ephesians 2, chapter 1. Not only were you in darkness, you were darkness. Not only now are you in the light, you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, he says. For the fruit of light is found in all that's good and right and true. And try to discern was pleasing to the Lord. Listen, you're light now. Light and darkness don't go together. When you go to the dark, when you hang out in the dark, when you hang out in the shadows, when, 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 you're, when, when the old patterns of darkness come in, you, you're shunning the light. You're blinding yourself to the light. And I, listen, too many believers go for too long without examining their lives, without auditing their lives and, 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 and doing it, drifting into the darkness. I remember we went to, the first time we went to Israel, and I've been several times, it's the only time I've ever done this, and I'll probably never do it again. I don't know if that, that's true, but it was in Israel, and Leslie and I were there together, and one of the places that you go to towards the end of the, of the trip is in Jerusalem. It's called Hezekiah's Tunnel. And it's this tunnel Hezekiah built. It goes from the Gion Spring, and it dumps out into the Pool of Siloam. And he built it because he was, the Assyrians were coming, and he wanted to, you know, shore up. He wanted to make sure they'd have water, even if, you know, the Assyrians stood around and tried to wait them out and, and starve them out. Um, but anyways, you can travel this tunnel. It was an amazing deal. It started... People started digging it on this end. People started digging it on this end. And amazingly, you know, I mean, this, they met in the middle without any modern technology. But you can walk through the tunnel. Now, it's not comfortable. In fact, it's the opposite of comfortable. There's nothing pleasant about it. There's still water in it. You're about ankle to knee-high water as you're walking one-third of a mile from one end to the other. And you descend out of the light of the day, a perfectly fine day. Somehow you decide, I think descending down into the darkness and walking through a tunnel of water where I can't see and it's crowded. And there are times you walk and the wall you feel on this side and on this side. And I remember we got about halfway into it. And there's people in front of us and there's people behind us and can't see. But I know that Leslie's the one that's in front of me. And I mean, in 25 years of marriage, I had never seen anything like this in my whole life. She lost it. darkness, the cramped, the crowding, the everything. I mean, it was, everything in her was screaming, I have to get out of this. This is what Paul's doing for her. He wants us, to, wants us to wake up. He wants us to look at her and go, how did I get here? What am I doing here? Verse 8, he's 
for, for one time, he says, you were darkness. But now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, he says. I'd liken it this way. Christian life's very much like a, you know, if you imagine a, a poor girl, a, a, a pauper, comes from meager or less resources and upbringing. And one day she meets the prince, and the prince falls in love with her, and the prince marries her, and she goes from poor and plain and penniless, and she marries the heir to a throne. And when she's united to him, she is completely different. Everything about her has changed. And at the same time, it's going to take a little while for her to catch up with her new reality. She sees herself as poor and she sees herself as plain still, maybe, but the reality is she's not any of that. She is everything. That's very much like the Christian life. You are light now. Walk as children of light. Well, he talks about the fruit of light, which is similar to the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians 5, 22, in verse 10, we would do trying to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And the first step here is if you find yourself down in the tunnel, find yourself still living as you were before you were united to Christ, the, the first place to to go in the midst of discerning what is pleasing to the Lord, if, the, if, if, if sin has dimmed His light in your life, that right now you would take time to confess that. You'd seek His cleansing. You'd seek His forgiveness. If you confess your sins, He's faithful and just to forgive you your sins, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Light illuminates where you are. It has the ability to transform who you are. Well, he's going to tell us, verse 11, don't take any part in those things. Look, he says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Instead, expose them. Your very presence, this is the illuminating power of the light. Your light, you're in Christ. Your life lived out. If, if, you're, if you're doing the, the, the living light, walking in the light... Your very presence, your very life exposes the darkness. Verse 12, it's shameful to speak of the things they do in secret. Verse 13, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. I was with a guy not too long ago. He's a great guy. Great guy. I had this experience being with him, his, his life, the only thing I can say is, man, his life is just, was just light. I mean, just, just a guy who, walking in the light, and I just remember thinking, I mean, I, it wasn't something that made me feel shamed, it wasn't something that made me feel guilty, it was something that, that I was so attracted to. Man, I want more of that. Light dispels the darkness in your world. Light, light attracts the right kind 
of attention. It's Christ in your life shining through. Verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but wise. Oh no, we're not even going to that far. Never mind. Verse 14, this is a hymn. Probably a hymn the church used to sing. Anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, this is probably the the closing hymn sometimes when they would gather on Sundays. Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. It's the reminder that you've been brought from death to life. It's what what the... Uh, as John talks about in the beginning of John, the, the, the light it was the life of men. The light of Christ awakens you, resurrects you, continues to put the old man to death and see the new man thrive. So my question this morning, and we'll close. Because Paul means for us to be convicted. He means for us to examine our life. Where has sin crept in? Where is the light being snuffed out in your life? See, God desires to use you. He desires for you to walk in Him. He desires for you to imitate all that He is. Where do you need to confess this morning? And then once you've confessed that sin, ask Him to kindle again that flame of light inside of you, the light that is Christ. If you would, would you bow with me? Let's pray. Father, I pray You would, you would do these things in our life, that the light of Your Word this morning would shine into whatever darkness or shadows that there are in our life, Father, it would expose that. Father, it would have a transforming effect on us. That we would in this moment just bow our heads so simply and so clearly and confess our sin to you. Confess the the darkness that has crept back into our life. And the Father knowing, believing, that you forgive our sins. You're faithful and just to forgive our sins. To cleanse us from all unrighteousness and to, and to shine bright. Again, the, the brightness of fellowship with you. So, Father, that's who we are. I pray that we would walk in that this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.